What's up, everyone? I'm Katherine Rudder, and this is Life in the Fast Chain. We've made it to episode five. Woohoo! Todd is on to give some news updates as per usual now. And we have JP Koning on. He's a thought leader in the blockchain space. So it's a great episode. Can't wait for you to hear it. I don't have a good intro this time, like last time. Um, okay. That's all right. That's all right. Okay. Okay. I don't have to start singing. I don't have to sing you in. Dang. Hello, everyone. I am here with Todd McDonald. Thank you for joining me again. Three episodes in a row. I'm very excited. Thank you for having me back up. Of course. Okay, let's get into it. Our first um, article, slash, this is a blog post um, that we're going to talk about, is called An Even-Handed Approach to Crypto Assets. So this is a blog by Christine Lagarde. I hope I'm saying your last name right. More or less. not, (laughs) you can call me Ruder. It's fine. So, Todd, what is this (laughs) blog post about? So this was pretty interesting. Maybe more interesting if you take if you take the perspective of looking at what the signals that are coming from the regulatory community are. Uh, so just the blog post on in and of itself is probably not super interesting, but if you look at it, it, it once again uh, highlights a term that I all, over the last few weeks I'm hearing everywhere, which is a crypto asset. Mm-hmm. So this is some, something that I believe Mark Carney from the Bank of England had mentioned, and in fact last week I was at a, a, a Europlus event here in New York, and uh, there was a speech by the governor of the Banque de France, and he mentioned crypto assets as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is the the new taxonomy nomenclature of, of the regulatory community. We're trying to do two things, I think. One is to redefine away uh, from things in the crypto world being a currency, cryptocurrency. Uh, one thing I realize is that the regulators really, really, really do not consider cryptocurrencies actual currencies for many reasons. And if you want to learn more about that, please read Mark Carney's speech from, I believe it was last month. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it's a helpful definition to see how it bridges between, uh, say, more traditional, quote unquote, digital assets and these new crypto assets. So we've already spoken a few times on this podcast around digital assets like with HQLAX and trade with markets of of really of digitizing existing assets or securities uh, that are you know, held by a custodian or, or really are known to financial markets to help make them better, cheaper, faster, uh, more transparent. So mm-hmm. the crypto asset is is it really an extension of that where it's it's a net new thing. And so I think the regulatory community and the financial community are trying to get their head around how all this fits together. And I guess the last part, if you, if you read read the post, it's very short and I would recommend you do. Um, even-handed is a term that a lot of the regulators are, are talking about. Uh, Mark Carney kind of used the same language where they're looking at the benefits from this innovation and this technology. Uh, they want to be able to extract that and we've... We, talking about them quite often with smart contracts and and uh, faster settlement times, et cetera, versus the risk. And really, the risks are probably twofold. One is fraud, which is a little bit less of what the IMF is talking about. And the second, which is much more important, is around stability. So mm-hmm. in some ways, the bigger the crypto asset market gets, the more attention it will get from the regulators because the more chance that it could impact stability going forward. But overall, I think for me, the really interesting part is when these, when when the regulators, you know, get their teeth in a in a different in a specific term, mm-hmm. I would definitely pay attention. This is how they're trying to define it going forward. Interesting. Good to note. Yeah, I think um, one kind of quote that summarizes the entire post is: uh, "Understanding the risks that crypto assets may pose to financial stability is vital if we are to distinguish between real threats and needless fears." 
needless fears. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's that deep. I know it did. Well, moving on, uh, a sidelined Wall Street legend bets on Bitcoin. Michael Novogratz is searching for redemption in cryptocurrencies. This is a massively long article. Thank <laughs> you, Todd. Long read. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think everyone should read this because it's yeah. really a fun article. It's um, well written, too, from well an written. English major. It's very well written. <laughs> right. So the author's name is Gary uh, Steingartz, speaking of pronouncing names, uh, I probably got that <laughs> wrong, but he's a novelist and he actually has a, a, a fantastic memoir, which I, I read a few years back. I don't think I actually made it to the end, but the beginning was quite good. Uh, so it's a very New Yorker E piece. Uh, so we get ready for that. But overall, uh, give it two thumbs up. And, and I've, I've told the story before, but in some ways, I, I owe a debt of gratitude to the New Yorker uh, and also for, for these articles being really long because the way I discovered Bitcoin and blockchain was through a New Yorker article from 2012. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. So the backstory was um, kind of like the modern version is uh, everyone using their parents' Netflix and HBO Go accounts. <laughs> I would I would basically end up stealing New Yorker articles from my in-laws because they would have, have them laying around the house. And it was a fringe benefit as well of allowing myself to uh, escape from uh, hanging out with them. So I was hiding. <laughs> in some, this is recorded. Yes, I know. <laughs> hiding in, in, uh, some, in some room in their house. And uh, I found this New Yorker article on Satoshi, who is Satoshi. So I urge everyone to go read that. Even now, it's a fantastic article. Um, mm -hmm. But but definitely read this. There's one quote that I thought was interesting. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a Colgate grad, and I've never uh, been in such August <laughs> company. But one of the quotes is, uh, the, the, the polished, fraternal, athletically built avatars of the Princeton, Colgate, and Duke axis which is wow. called out in the middle. Um, That's a lot of big words. That is a lot. Uh, I've never <laughs> been accused of being athletically built uh, or polished, so I'm very, very happy for that. That's good. Well, yeah, that's a great article. Very well written. Like we said, I'm going to tag these um, articles in the uh, podcast, so be sure to check them out. Um, next off, a cryptocurrency CEO bragged that he ran off with $50 million. <laughs> This is so funny. But, but after a journalist tracked him down in Egypt, he said it was just a joke. Yeah. So this article had me laughing my butt off because <laughs> I thought it was so ridiculous. It's very, um, very interesting. So basically, background would be that a German cryptocurrency startup called SaveDroid um, vanished from the web on Wednesday, leaving behind a South Park meme, which is one of the funnier memes I've ever seen. Yes. And it's gone. <laughs> yes. I love that meme. But uh, <laughs> then afterwards, the founder tweeted a picture on the beach, leading investors to believe that he had left with all their money. So tell us a little bit about what you think. Yeah. So, uh, well, basically, this is way too meta overall. So <laughs> Evidently, this was meant to actually be a protest against ICO scams Yeah. while pretending like the gentleman was pulling off an ICO scam. So the problem here is this isn't like a Joaquin Phoenix fake documentary. This is, <laughs> this is about money. It's real money. Yes. So when, when people's money, and in some cases, some of these, their, their life saving is, is involved in a project, you, you can't really be... Uh, you don't have the uh, ability to be that funny with other people's money. Yeah. And also the other interesting thing, and actually that was a direct quote from the article. It says, <laughs> quote, this is not funny. So that is good <laughs> feedback for the saved droid guy. And the last <laughs> thing is it was a really interesting window onto sort of the, the self-delusion of supporters of certain uh, tokens and ICOs where even mm -hmm. during this whole episode, 
the majority of true believers kept the faith that everything was just fine. Yeah. Um, even though it wasn't, but then it was again, and probably getting meta again, since he pulled, tried to pull the stunt, it's probably not fine. <laughs> yeah. Right. I feel like, how do you go back to trusting someone that is... This is the last time I trust the Save Droid guy. Yeah, I thought... I'm, I'm trying to find the guy's name. Uh, his last name's Celine, I think, who tried to track him down, the reporter. Um, that's a badass reporter. I kind of <laughs> like that. <laughs> Tracked him to Egypt. Um, that's a very funny read. So uh, interesting. Kind of sad for those investors, but... At least it's just a joke. <laughs> so, moving forward, rappers, ravens, and Lord of the Rings, the race for dope, in quotes, right. coin names is on. Time to get more serious. Time to get more serious. <laughs> yeah, so this article uh, drew my attention because I used to love Lord of the Rings when I was growing up. Fun fact, three brothers. Um, so I loved Lord of the Rings. But this is actually a very interesting article. Because it starts uh, talking about the Lord of the Rings trilogy and Mithril being that that metal, uh, that made up metal. So it's kind of like a geeky thing that not everyone would know about. Um, and people are naming their blockchain projects and coins. Yeah. And off I, of it's sad. Things. I was reading the article and I realized that, you know, you can be all highfalutin and think, oh, this is ridiculous. But then I read about, you know, this project Tron, which every, a lot of people are hating on. But. <laughs> that's a really sick name. Tron's an awesome yeah. name for a project. And it even made me think, oh, wait, maybe there's more to this Tron thing. Um, yeah. So so it's hard to throw stones. And also uh, here at R3, we are uh, pretty used to naming projects as well um, and trying to one-up each other. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm very proud of the, the one project that's really stood the test of time. I named it Project Voltron. So speaking of yeah, it's my childhood, which is was a little bit... Uh, Farther ago than yours, Catherine. Um, Voltron <laughs> was a was a very important part of uh, growing up, and also was probably like a third parent to me watching that cartoon. So having a, <laughs> having a project named after that was a, was really a, a feather in my cap. Yeah, that's a good one. I was trying to think before this what I would name a project, and I just I don't think I could beat Voltron or Mithril. I don't think is that great. But... Mithril is pretty sad. Yeah. yeah, it's not. There's not a lot of power behind it. Yeah, I, but I think uh, I think we're going to be eventually going to be running out of these project names and these uh, these coin names. So they're actually going to have to come back to uh, uh, something that's a little bit more pedestrian, unfortunately for them. Which yeah. means they actually might have to have working technology. What? Drop the mic, Todd McDonald, in the studio. I'm here with J.P. Koning. Thank you so much for joining today. I can't believe we're finally sitting down to record this. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Great. So let's start with the basics. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself before I hound you with some uh, questions? <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, I'm. Um, uh, my name is J.P. Koning, and uh, I've always been involved in the finance industry, Uh Usually on the banking side and in <clears throat> in equity markets as an analyst. Mm -hmm. And when uh, Bitcoin came around, in I started I noticed it first in 2011, and um, I started to learn as much as I could about it. I also was writing a blog at the time called Moneyness, mm -hmm. which I continued to do so, and uh, it became really the the major topic or at least one of the major topics on my, my blog along with uh, cash and central banking and monetary monetary policy and all sorts of other stuff <clears throat> and uh, I've since become um, sort of shifted from the, the finance industry more into the uh, writing financial writing and blogging side 
and uh, I did a few papers for R3, um, one in 2016 on FedCoin and another, just a general paper on payments in the uh, last year in 2017. Yeah, those were great papers. Um, can you talk about what those papers were about a little more in depth? And also note to listeners, you can download them on r3.com. Yeah, sure. So the first um, <clears throat> the first uh, paper was on FedCoin. Um, that was a, a, a paper based on an idea I first wrote about my blog in two, 2014 called FedCoin. Um, <laughs> and basically, like I said, I, I got interested in Bitcoin along with a lot of other people on the economics blogosphere. And we sort of uh, uh, all started talking about this idea about stabilizing the value of Bitcoin. The problem with Bitcoin um, is that it's so volatile that it, it, its usage as a meet, an actual medium of exchange by the general population is, is it's just not going to happen. It's just when you have a currency that rises by 50% and that collapses by 75%, it, it, yeah. it, it becomes, it's just way too risky. So the idea was, well, maybe if you had a central bank uh, copy the Bitcoin source code, and insert one little tweak, you'd allow the central bank to modify the quantity of tokens outstanding. Everything else would stay the same. Mm -hmm. And it could change the quantity such that uh, the price of these tokens, we call them Fed coins, would stay pegged to that of a $1 US banknote. Um, it could be any central bank, really. We call it Fed coin just because it's kind of catchy. Mm -hmm. um, so it could be pegged to the value of a Canadian $1 banknote. In that case, it would be run by the Bank of Canada, the central bank up here in Canada. It could be a, a Fed coin where it's pegged to a $1 uh, US banknote. Um, and by doing so, you create a very stable cryptocurrency. Yeah. Um, and, and the idea is, well, if once we stabilize this value, maybe it would become a, a generally accepted medium of exchange. And, and then you you'd solve one of the major problems with Bitcoin. So that's where FedCoin came from. Uh, and the second paper uh, I mentioned was called Evolution in Cash and Payments. And that was just a, a general um, overview of the payment system. It was, uh, it was sort of structured in terms of, well, here are the incumbent systems, um, the systems that have been around for a long time, and you have... Uh, the traditional central bank settlement systems. <clears throat> you have um, you have the, the traditional cross-border payment systems, which are uh, operated by banks and correspondent banks, and they use the SWIFT uh, network to communicate. And then, lastly, the other last traditional player you have that I talked about was the remittance companies like Western Union, the traditional ones. And we went into each one of these categories and talked about well. How are um, who are the new entrants? Like, what are the new the, the new technologies, and how are they threatening the incumbents? And there were a, a couple of DLT uh, distributed ledger options for each one of these three categories. And also, there's also a lot of um, non-DLT uh, based competitors. So it was just a general overview for people who are sort of either in the space and want an update, or they're new to the space and want to see sort of the evolution of payments over the last ten years. 
Yeah, let's uh, back up a little bit to uh, what CBDCs are, just for listeners who don't know exactly what that is. Um, and I guess part two of that question would be what what you think needs to happen for CBDCs to work in terms of the design, market structure, and regulation. Yeah, okay. So CBDC is, um, there's probably a couple definitions. The one I'll use is uh, just very, uh, the most general definition is the idea that a central bank would issue um, a digital token that can be used by anyone. Um, So right now, central banks do issue a a token that can be used by anyone. It's cash, but it's not, that's not a digital token. That's, that's a paper token. Um, The idea is getting it, updating the cash model so that it moves I suppose into the 20 into the 21st uh, 21st century and issues a product that you could use over the internet that you could send remotely to you know a friend uh, in a different continent that sort of thing yeah um, so that's just the most general explanation of CBDC and then you can what what happens next is there's all sorts of specifications you can get into um, that complicate exactly what a CBDC is like. Is it going to be anonymous or not anonymous? That's one of the major issues. Interesting. Is it, or, or is it going to be semi? Like you can also go, you know, a range between that. Is it anonymous? Perhaps the central bank can see what you're doing, but the retailer who's accepting the central bank, the digital currency, can't see it. So there's different ranges of anonymity. Um, another model is. Uh, the user chooses, like they could be, you could choose anonymity or you could choose to unveil yourself. Presumably, if you unveil yourself, you might get, um, uh, you might be, you might enjoy some sort of extra benefits, like an interest payment or something. Um, so another design specification in addition to anonymity is, would it be account-based or would it be more like a bearer token? So an account-based product, you actually uh, would have to apply for an account and it w- you would have to each time before you make a payment, you would have to log into your account and that account would have to talk with the central bank. Whereas w- if, it's a, if it's a bearer token, which is uh, just a fancy name for the, if you bear it, if you hold it in your hand, mm-hmm. Uh, like cash, you don't have to talk to the central bank when you make a cash payment. It, it, it's a totally distributed system. I could, I could have, I could hand you five dollars, and you could take it. And we, as sort of independent nodes, have verified that the transaction is done and settled it. We don't have to call up the central bank and submit our, um, uh, you know, a record of our transaction and ask for them to approve it. We we do that independently. And in a distributed manner. So that's another design specification between, um, you know, an account-based centralized product or a decentralized uh, bearer token product. So I would say those are like two fairly important uh, design specifications. And that, like, whichever way you choose to go creates an entirely different type of CBDC. Mm-hmm. So um, if you if you create uh, a CBDC that is an anonymous and a bearer instrument, it basically is exactly like cash. If you create like like a banknote, if you create a CBDC that's account-based 
and is not anonymous, um, then you have something that's very much like a bank account that uh, at Bank of America or something. There's not much difference. That's where I would say right now in, in, the, in the discussion on CBDC, that's where central banks are right now. They're trying to figure out, well, which way do they want to go? Um, and in terms of, you asked about regulation. Well, I think it's so early in the, um, it's so early in the conversation on CBDC that it hasn't really, uh, the, the, the whole idea of regulation hasn't, um, become imperative yet. Mm -hmm. We're, uh, right now what central bankers are really thinking about is, uh, uh, what are these things gonna? What are these things gonna look like first? They haven't even entered the pilot stage, so it's, yeah. it's really so early on in the discussion. Yeah, well, that is the perfect segue into my next two questions. Um, so, what are your thoughts specifically on the recent um, BIS report, um, and how and what does it say about how seriously central banks are considering CBDCs? I know this also relates to your recent blog post replying to Mark Car Carney's comments. So, if you'd like to talk about those two things, um, that could sure. clear up a lot of this. So, uh, yeah, the BI. Well, first of all, the fact that the BIS has issued a, a large report on this, it means that central bank, like the discussion has really advanced. Yeah. Because the the BIS is basically, uh, it's basically the, the central bank for central banks. It's where uh, like central bankers um, hold meetings amongst each other. It's, uh, it's where they uh, discuss matters that don't get um, put forth to the public. The fact that the, that they've chosen to, to 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 make a public report on this means that that it's become like a very important question for central bankers, and and you can also see it like uh, a lot of central banks are publishing their own research on the question. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to find a central bank that hasn't done that. So it it just it just indicates how advanced the discussion is. The actual report it has. Uh, it, it, it's pretty comprehensive, um, and I guess there's two things I would break in terms of my my thinking on the report. They they touch on monetary policy, um, and their conclusion is roughly that if if you were to issue a CBDC, well, what sort of implications would that have from um, the way central banks currently do monetary policy? Would would it would it cause problems? Really, is their question. Um, and the the conclusion is no, it wouldn't cause problems. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't sort of clog the the, the passageway, so to say. It, it would it would mean monetary monetary policy as usual. Mm -hmm. And I think that by monetary policy, I mean you know uh, central banks have an inflation target that they try to hit by moving the interest rate up and down. And if you were to take away cash or um, complement cash with the CBDC. Would this would this prevent central banks from somehow hit, hit, hitting hitting their inflation targets? And so the the answer is no, and I pretty much agree with that. And in addition to um, allowing a central bank to hit its targets, it, it it could actually make the job easier in certain respects. Um, there's this uh, this barrier in monetary economics called the zero lower bound. And um, what that is, is the idea that uh, a central bank 
when there's a financial crisis or some sort of hit to the economy needs to reduce its the interest rate in order to uh, sort of cushion the, cushion the blow, so to say. And if the interest rate, if it starts out reducing interest rates at, say, and the interest rate is 1%, and it needs to reduce by 3%, well, at some point it hits zero, right? And it would actually have to go into negative territory to accomplish what it needs to do. If it uh, hits 0% and then goes to negative, say, negative 0.05%, all of a sudden uh, banknotes look like a really, really good investment option because they continue to yield 0%. Banknote neither pays interest nor does it dock you interest. Mm -hmm. So what will happen is the further into negative territory that they try to reduce their policy rate in order to hit their targets, the more the population is going to flee into banknotes, in essence, crippling the whole banking sector. Because <clears throat> who wants to hold a, a bank account when they're being forced to pay you know, negative 1% when you can hold a banknote and pay 0%? So you get like this huge flight to cash effect. And it cripples bank uh, central bankers. It prevents them from being able to push the interest rate deep, deep enough into negative territory in order to to uh, uh, provide stimulus. So a central bank digital currency, on the other hand, unlike regular cash, could actually have a negative interest rate. It could also have a positive interest rate. Interesting. So if you, yeah, it, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of like, uh, well, I mean, it's hard to imagine your your banknote in your pocket paying interest, right? Or 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 having a negative interest rate deduction. But that's what a central bank digital currency would, in essence, allow. Like for the first time, those the the, the cash you hold, not in your wallet, but on your device, would actually be able to, you know, be interest bearing or have a negative interest rate. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I never never thought of that. I'm learning so much. I'm telling you, I am literally taking notes as you speak, which I haven't done yet on the <laughs> podcast, but that's great. So I guess also touching on that, you did write this uh, blog post recently critiquing the Carney critique of central yeah. bank digital currency. I know they're they're interconnected. Is there anything you'd like to touch on there? Yeah. So the, so the Mark Carney critique is similar to the second aspect of the BIS report. They're really the same thing. Mark Carney is actually really uh, he's he's does a lot of um, he's really high up in the BIS. There's a hierarchy of central bankers involved in the BIS, and he's very high in that hierarchy. So in a sense, their opinions are quite uh, interlinked. So the the BIS it, one worry they have of central bank digital currencies is that um, they will in essence, in essence cannibalize the existing banking system. And that's something that Mark Carney has talked about several times. And the idea is if you create this uh, new digital currency, um, all of a sudden everyone who has a bank account might just shut down their bank account and take out all their deposits and buy the central bank digital currency. And uh, banks are important because they are what link um, uh, lenders and borrowers. They, uh, the, the, the deposit, they depend on these deposits, deposits in order to fund their lending operations. So if you suddenly have everyone fleeing deposits, banks won't be able to lend as much. And this is called disintermediation. It's a, it's a fancy word for just meaning, you know, banks will no longer be relevant or as relevant as they were in the past. And instead, people will be holding a lot more uh, currency issued by central banks. 
Um, so that's the that's the carny worry is that all of a sudden banks will be irrelevant and and the the worry is even heightened, more heightened in the, in in case of a financial crisis or some sort of panic. Like if you if you're worried and you want to withdraw your money from your bank, you actually have to physically walk there. You might have to stand in a lineup. You're gonna to have to hit some buttons. You're gonna to have to wait for the thing to process, and then you'll get your cash. Whereas with a CBDC, you could literally be sitting on your couch or uh, you know. Um, Doing the dishes, and all of a sudden, you might have this whim to take out some 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 digital currency, and you could literally do it with it, you know, a, a click of a button. Wow! So the worry is that when there's some sort of crisis, um, the, the the ease of taking out a digital currency relative to the difficulties of taking out cash will render the banking system much more susceptible to runs and that sort of thing. So that's the worry, and then. The blog post, like I, I don't really buy this, these worries because, in essence, I, I think um, what people value in a in a bank deposit is not just uh, having balances on hand to make payments. They also value it, the the ongoing relationship, which involves all sorts of things. Like you can get loans from your bank, you can get uh, foreign exchange, you can get. Um, you can get safety deposit uh, boxes. Yeah. You can get all sorts of things. Plus, you get a lot of fraud prote- fraud protection. Um, if, if yeah, if someone steals your money, you can get the it, reversal, right? So yeah. you have the all these extra ongoing uh, connections and services provided with a bank. Whereas with a currency, it, it's like a one use product it's sort of like a disposable diaper versus a, a diaper that you would keep or, or sort of like a subscription versus just buying a magazine once i like your first example better <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you don't want the ongoing relationship with something you just want to throw it away right yeah. so with cash it's nice because the second you spend it you no longer have any connection to anything you don't have to worry about what about the issuer mm-hmm. uh coming after you for some reason you don't have to worry about the, uh, the 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 person you bought something from having a record, like being able to link you to it. So it's uh, it's actually a service that a lot of people like. So the upshot is people already have um, uh, their preferences with respect to having a ca- an account or cash, and yeah. they like features of each. So if you in- introduce a new kind of cash, a new sort of disposable currency, a one-time currency, and it's a little better because it's digital, people probably aren't going to suddenly shift from their existing account-based product to a cash-based product because they really do like that account-based product. Yeah. All they'll do is they'll hopefully uh, move from their existing cash-based product into the upgraded cash-based product. So the, the, the upshot is that this sort of what Carney and the BIS worry about this disintermediation probably I'm not so worried about it. I, and I think really what's going to happen is you just have people moving from cash, one type of cash into the other type of cash. Okay. So then on that kind of note, um, so you, would you say that CBDCs would complement and coexist with cash, or do you think in the long long run that it will eventually replace cash, like physical cash? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm I'm really reticent to answer that exactly because I, I saw there's this 
survey taken by the Bank of Finland, that's Finland's central bank, back in 1999, and they asked a bunch of people involved in the payments industry, like, well, do you think uh, e-currency, they called it e-money back then, <laughs> not CBDC, but they said e-money, do you think it's going to replace cash? And about 75% of, the, of, of them said yes, or at least partly yes. And then the next question was, when is it going to replace cash? And the biggest, uh, like the not the majority, but the largest chunk of answers said before 2015. And then, so you look at it's 2018 and cash is still thriving, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of wary about uh, exactly giving any um, any uh, predictions or about what's going to happen with cash. I think it's a lot more tenacious than people think and, and like the politics behind it are... Uh, are such that it, it's it's not it's really difficult to take it away. People really like cash, so I I think it's probably going to last longer than people think. Whatever the consensus is, maybe I'll go a little higher than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and if there's going to be a, a, a CBDC, it for sure it will um, be issued in conjunction with cash for some sort of interim period. Yeah. Because central bankers, they're very conservative, and the last thing they would want to do is cause some sort of abrupt or sudden shift. They would want people to get used to um, the CBDC without having to uh, suddenly have their cash taken away from them. So, you know, you, you could imagine maybe a 20-year period in which this two circulate concurrently, maybe 10 years, I, I don't know. But it would be fairly long. So you ha you would have that period of coexistence. And then, I mean, at some point, you would think that cash would become digital. <laughs> like I say, I don't want to... You don't want people quoting you in a <laughs> whatever. Oh, I almost said 2020. It's already 2018. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh exactly. exactly. In 2030, 2040. But at some point, you'd think they would... Cash would perhaps move digital. Yeah. Purely. So I, I don't see... I can't see that not happening. Yeah, well, a specific um, BIS recent report that Kevin from the research team brought to my attention um, is that it showed that the amount of physical cash is actually increasing globally in many countries due to a combination of economic growth and inflation. Um, but in Sweden, consumer preferences are reducing physical cash, which uh, might be why the Riksbank in Sweden is considering issuing an e-krona. So do you think that they will ultimately issue an e-krona? Yeah, it's, I think of all the, like you say, they're, they really stand out. It's the only country in the world just actually seeing a decline in cash yeah. usage. Part of that may be due to the fact that they had, they, they, um, they changed their tax policies about 10 years back. And anyone who is, uh, say, hiring a contractor to get a renovation or hiring someone to clean their house uh, can now get a if they de if they declare it, they can actually get a tax uh, like a tax break. So they have a huge incentive to um, to to bring what are traditionally these activities are traditionally done in cash and out in the, in the informal economy. By if, if you tell people, well, you get a cash break, all of a sudden, all these activities get brought into the formal economy and they become less cash based. So that might be one reason why the cash usage is falling. 
but back to the main part of that question there. Um, I think uh, they're, they're definitely, if anyone's going to drop adopt it, it could be the Ritz Bank. And that's um, a, a large reason for that is because uh, it's, it's, it's losing income. And central banks, in, in some respect, need income in order to remain independent. And what I mean by income is any central bank, uh, is it, it basically borrows money from and funds from people and it lends them out. And it's called the spread. And this is the same for any bank, really. It borrows uh, at a cheaper rate and lends it out at a more expensive rate. In the case of a central bank, it borrows... What it, what, what it borrows is by issuing banknotes and the public by holding banknotes is essentially lending to the central bank. And then the, lend, the central bank in turn gets to buy assets with those on which it learn, earns return. Um, so the spread is the difference between the 0% it pays on a banknote versus the say 3 or 4% that it earns on an asset. So it's a really big spread. Very few people can borrow at 0%. Yeah. It's a it's a great business to be in, but they have a monopoly on that. And because that spread between the zero percent banknote that they issue and the say four or five percent asset that they own in their vault is so big, central banks earn a lot of income uh, profits. And traditionally, out of the profits, they'll deduct some for salaries and research and and uh, running the printing machines and that sort of thing. And then the rest they give back to uh, the government, the taxpayer. Um, and any government agency which is that profitable will tend to get a, a bit more leeway or independence than a political independence than a, than a, than a department that constantly has to be asking the, the executive branch for money. So in one sense, that's why central banks have been able over the last 20 years or 30 years have been able to exercise huge amounts of independence in setting monetary policy. Like they're really not answerable to anyone. And that's how they like it. So bringing this back to the profits, if you have banknote issuance like in Sweden plummeting, that means declining income. <clears throat> you have less and less of these 0% liabilities that you use to fund yourself. And as they earn less and less profit at some point could hit zero at which point instead of being a net provider to the government they could actually be drawing on the public for their operating budgets at which point they could really lose a lot of their independence hmm. so instead of uh instead of it's sort of like the Reichsbank trying to continue its institution as an institution like it, it as opposed to the sort of the public good argument for why they would issue uh, e-kroner. Like it kind of needs to in order to continue its existence as an independent organization. If it can, if, if e-kroner was, was popular, then you'd might see, you know, a lot of its ability to earn high profits would, would be reborn, so to say. And uh, that decline in the amount of 0% liabilities it's issued over the last 10 years would would reverse and it would return to being a highly profitable organization. So yeah, I could I could see the Reichsbank. Uh, you know, it, it it could be that, and that's why it is probably been one of the most active in discussing the idea of CBDC. Yeah. 
That's an interesting uh, use case. So I'm going to ask you one last question, and then I'll let you let you move on today. Um, so we keep seeing stablecoin projects raising money. What is your view on stablecoins? And honestly, what is a stablecoin? <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's a good question. So a stablecoin <laughs> is basically um, the idea is if you could create uh, a Bitcoin mm-hmm. and stabilize it, like a fed coin but without unlike unlike a fed coin you don't have a central issuer stabilizing it so it it again again it's it's that that when you have a the federal reserve stabilizing it a lot of people don't like that idea because it reintroduces sort of a central point of failure so to say the idea behind a stable coin is uh you don't have the actual Federal Reserve stabilizing it, you would have some sort of mechanism, like some sort of on a digital online um, distributed mechanism that keeps it steady. Okay. So, and it would be pegged to say the U.S. dollar. You could peg it to any sort of thing, but it would be pegged maybe to gold or euros. But it, that's when they say stable. The stable aspect is it's that this this decentralized mechanism for keeping the unit pegged. Let me see. It's it's tough to say because there's also all sorts of other kinds of stable coins. So this the type of stable coin I'm talking about is the, the distributed one, but there's also centralized stable coins like Tether and that sort of thing. So I think Tether is more pretty much more like an actual like a, 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 it reintroduces the central point of failure because you have an organization with an address um, that holds a reserve of of dollars in its vaults, and that's what it uses to stabilize the stable coin. So that that's one kind of stablecoin. You also have the ones which I was trying to explain before, which use this distributed mechanism for stabilizing the stablecoin, uh, and that takes out that central point of failure, which Tether has, which Fedcoin has, and it, it could be, I guess, the perfect. And I'm using this with uh, quotation marks, the perfect kind of digital currency. In some respects. That makes sense. I guess I could have inferred the stable stable coin name, but I never know in this world. That does make sense to me why it would be called stable yeah. coin. Yeah, and, and it's like, you know, they're, they are issuing, they're, they're raising, you hear about these projects all the time, uh, and they're raising yeah. a lot of money. And um, it's, it's really because if you could create a stable currency for the same reason creating a Fed coin, then it might actually become popular as a medium of exchange. Uh, you know, you might actually, instead of being used, Bitcoin is, I think, is largely used as a, a medium for speculation. Yeah. Had something that was <clears throat> pegged to the dollar, you could use it for buying, you know, uh, your groceries or paying your rent or that sort of thing. It could actually become uh, widely usable. So um, <clears throat> I guess it all depends on 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 these me- the mechanisms for for securing the stability of the coin are really, um, uh, they're still quite uh, undeveloped. Um, you, about a month ago, one of the stable coins, Nubits, um, failed for the second time. Like its peg, it lost its peg. It collapsed, it's pegged to the US dollar and it collapsed from $1 down to about 40 cents or something Yikes. for the second time, right? So they're still, in the un- they're really undeveloped. And yeah. I think they're really interesting, um, but I'm still sort of on the fence if they work. 
Okay, well, JP, thank you so much. This is all so interesting. Yeah, no problem, Catherine. Um, okay, so to learn more, everyone, be sure to check out papers that JP has written. He also has a blog, um, which I will put in the information of this episode. Um, where else can everyone follow you? Uh, on Twitter, at JP underscore cloning. Um, on Twitter, I have a discussion board if you, anyone ever ask, wants to ask random questions which is linked to from my blog. And of course, on the blog, Moneyness, I'm pretty active. I post, you know, five or six times a month. So Perfect. Now I'm going to end up spamming you for uh, <laughs> come back on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Maybe, maybe, once we, maybe once we find out if these stable coins work or not. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much again. All right. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life in the Fast Chain. We appreciate the support the podcast has gotten so far, and we can't wait to continue on this momentum of amazing guests in the future. We have a bunch of interviews lined up for you guys, so be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and rate it, like it, love it, share it with your mom, share it with your brother, share it with everyone.